Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. No regrets, anyway, she told herself. Or, as her daughter liked to say, quoting a famous meme of a man proudly displaying his misspelled tattoo, no regrets. This program features the work of 2022 writer Ruth Schemmel. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Ruth, why don't you begin by telling us about your Jack Straw project? Sure. I'm writing a collection of short stories about difficult women. Basically, I'm interested in women who don't fit in. They attempt to follow the rules as they understand them, and it's not working out. Now, have you uh, always been a writer? I've always wanted to be a writer, and I've written pretty consistently through my life, but I haven't taken my art seriously. When I um, was in college, that's when I first started studying writing and loved it, but had a lot of work to do. I wasn't great. I wasn't a genius off the bat. And after leaving college, that's really all I wanted to do was write and work on writing, but I just somehow didn't feel I had the confidence or the talent or the ability to do that. I felt like I needed to be a responsible person. I needed to get a job. Um, So I had several jobs that were sort of writing adjacent, like I worked in publishing for a while. Then I was a copy editor. I became an English teacher, teaching English, teaching writing. But I wrote. Like I was getting up at 4 a.m. to write before going to my high school teaching job. Mm -hmm. I usually started an academic year with that, and that got me through about maybe November, and then I was just too exhausted to keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) But so I fit it in. Mm -hmm. It was my mom's advice when I was growing up, just, sure, yeah, you can be a writer, but you need to have a profession first. Mm -hmm. And then when you sell your, then you start selling books, then you can quit your job. Mm-hmm. But the problem is I'm just like I'm not that kind of genius that can just spring up out of the little crumbs and bits of time that I've put aside for writing. Like my work isn't going to suddenly announce itself and become so important <laughs> that the world recognizes that I need to quit my day job and just start writing right now. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really until very recently I got a cancer diagnosis mm. and – realized that in some ways I had been waiting until retirement to live the life that I've always wanted. Like, then I'll have the hours Mm -hmm. a day that I can put into this. Then I can really do the thing I want to do. But when you get a diagnosis like that, of course, you realize, all right, that's that's not a guarantee. There might not be a retirement. Mm -hmm. I mean, for any of us, you know. And I realized I couldn't put off this any longer. Mm -hmm. Let me just say, first of all, I am so glad you're putting yourself out there and you're taking your writing seriously in a way that maybe you didn't before because I love your writing and I'm so glad you're in this program. Thank you. Um, 
one of the things in your application, you said, quote, nothing fundamentally has changed in regard to the conflicting messages we're sending our young girls. And I, I found that really interesting. And uh, I'm very much invested in that as a parent and just as a person in this kind of charged society. Um, I'm wondering if you as a writer, what are some of these like messages that you want to impart on readers? I don't know that I want to impart any particular message. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of exploring dissatisfactions and mm. frustrations um, through these stories. Definitely my characters are not role models. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not advocating that anyone follow their paths or decision-making. Mm -hmm. But it's not new, these struggles that my characters are facing. They've been around for a very long time. We're aware that it's problematic to raise women to think of themselves as the object of the male gaze, for example. Mm -hmm. And yet that is such a huge problem for young women today. It's not, it hasn't gone away. It's, if anything, intensified. Mm -hmm. Instagram and the, the terrible pressure oh, that yeah. young women feel to have a certain look or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, as a teacher, I've, def I've, I've seen that we, we do expect different things of our, our girls and boys. And again, this is mm -hmm. not new. Mm -hmm. or revolutionary, but it's still happening. Like we still expect and sort of train girls to be pleasers, mm -hmm. to please, to follow the rules. And I find myself doing that with my own daughters, just making sure, policing their tone, making sure mm -hmm. that they're not being threatening in the way that they come across. And there's something pragmatic about that because mm -hmm. you'll get the better result if you follow these rules. But it's frightening to me, too. Now we'll hear a selection from Ruth's live reading. You know why we wear lipstick, don't you? Aubrey, for some reason, finds herself saying. Makes men think of vulvas. <laughs> Excuse me? Her date stops chewing. What is his name? Hubert. His name is Hubert, and he works in game design. Video games, she's already embarrassingly asked him to confirm. Not like Monopoly or Mousetrap. <laughs> Mousetrap, he'd asked. That's the game you think of when you think of games? Actually, when Aubrey thinks of games, she thinks of the things she's doing with Ivan. Married, Ukrainian, religious Ivan. Ivan, who manages an assisted living home and who, questionably, despite the very real threat of COVID in those frightening pre-vaccine days, took her mother in for hospice and allowed Aubrey to visit her until the end. You could say 
Ivan saved her life. And you could say what she's doing now, what she's done anyway, with Ivan, twice in her Subaru while parked on the street at night by the assisted living home, and once in the bathroom of her mother's old room in the home itself, is thanking him. Hubert is her attempt at something healthier, this coffee and muffin date. All the coffee and muffin dates she set up for herself in recent months. Because Aubrey is impressed with Hubert despite herself, impressed anyway with the video game thing, she's resolved not to seem so. Lipstick, she says, it's why we wear it. <laughs> we, meaning all women, she's what, a spokeswoman now for womankind? She who automatically fell silent in the presence of more than one woman, outwomaned, who always felt like a woman imposter? Well, there were none here now to challenge her credentials. <laughs> Bulbas, Hubert repeats. Weird, huh? You're wearing lipstick, he says, with a dumb, low grin that makes her hate him a little, but also makes him less impressive, easier to dismiss. You're wearing lipstick right now. How had she not seen this trap when she herself had constructed it and <laughs> wide-eyed walked right in? Yes, Aubrey says assertively, but not for the same reason. Why then? Culture, tradition, conformity, not rocking boats. I didn't realize you were such a rule-abiding woman. Hubert flicks his eyes down what he can see of her body damaged from cancer and chemo. Not that it's likely, he can tell. Her foobs, anyway, her fake boobs, stand their ground. Hello and welcome, they seem to say. He dodges her eyes, saving them both a moment of recognition in which it might become obvious he was thinking about her vulva. And she was thinking he was thinking about her vulva. <laughs> or else something's off about the foobs. Let's talk world cinema. Aubrey says, impatient, <laughs> let's talk Almodovar. What's your take? I'm indifferent, I guess. Indifferent. Well, that scraps my theory. What's your theory? Hubert has given up eating altogether and is just watching her now, something flinty in his smile, as if he's trying to guess the punchline to this particular joke. The joke of Aubrey being his date. The joke that this meeting might lead anywhere to anything. I forget it. She's suddenly weary, tired of being looked at. Unless she's wearing rude lingerie beneath her social worker skirt sweater combo, and the one doing the looking is Ivan. <laughs> Maybe she'll see Ivan this afternoon, after all. Let's get back to vulvas, she says. No, I want to hear the theory. All right. It's the theory of assholes. <laughs> her heart is already not in this. But the show must go on, she imagines her mother, dead now, declaring. Not her actual mother, but the version of her mother she'd believed in as a child. Her fun and surprising mother, not at all beaten down by life, not yet reduced to what she finally became. Rueful, merely obedient, politely answering question after question of her cancer surgeon who used her zany answers to prove that her brain was not worth operating on, that she had not enough mind left to save. She thinks it's 2053, 
She thinks Ronald Reagan is president. Assholes, Aubrey says, tend to like Almodovar and talk about him at great length as if they understood him. Pretentious assholes, I mean, who are men, American men, U.S. born, I should say, of a certain age, like you. <laughs> what if adversity doesn't bring wisdom? What if you can stumble blindly through life, hurting people, hurting yourself, bringing flawed, damaged children into the world to suffer on their own, essentially learning little to nothing, and then die, still not having learned? This question first impressed itself upon Aubrey in the stunned early days after she received her cancer diagnosis, just a few months after her mother's passing to cancer and Alzheimer's body and mind going off together into a sunset, why not? Hand in hand, as if finally acknowledging a long secret affair everybody already knew about anyway. I'm too stupid to die, was Aubrey's thought. How could this be? I've learned nothing. And had her mother learned anything? Had her mother really lived? Short answer, nothing and no. Aubrey was newly single through both of these traumas. Her mother's death, her own diagnosis and treatment, her journey, as work friends insisted on calling it, having divorced her loyal Midwestern husband over a dispute about what color to paint the living room wall. Puce was the color Aubrey had fixated on, had insisted upon against all reason. Mousetrap, that's what it was. She'd gone after what she thought was the cheese. Freedom adventure, more life, and had been tricked into letting go of this sort of dull, solid man whose usefulness and worth were apparent to her now in the complicated weathering through parts of human existence. No regrets anyway, she told herself. Or, as her daughter liked to say, quoting a famous meme of a man proudly displaying his misspelled tattoo, no regrets. <laughs> Aubrey comes home from her date craving sleep more than anything, more even than Ivan. But if she's smart about it, she can manage both. A time for all things, to reap, to sow, to take a YouTube sleep hypnosis-assisted power nap, to drop in for a surprise quickie with Ivan, all before he picks up his kids from school at 3 o'clock. But she's thwarted by the unexpected presence of her daughter, 17-year-old Mags huddled over her phone at the kitchen counter with her impish school friend, Zell. Aren't you guys supposed to be at school? Um, it's Wednesday. Mags delivers a canny stare, daring Aubrey to say she doesn't know what this means. And then she remembers. Her daughter gets out early on Wednesdays. Always has. Mags has recently acquired a secret life, Aubrey believes, evidenced by a string of tardies and missing assignments at school, an F in an advanced math class she either can't or won't fix, and, topping it all, a cigarette butt she's found in the yard, of which Mags denies all knowledge. The cigarette butt, more than anything else, makes Aubrey feel like a shitty parent. Anyone's kid might struggle in school, but only the most egregiously neglected become smokers. <laughs> so how is school, Aubrey says. School? Mags makes her face a perfect blank. Awesome. Homework? 
some. Zell, meanwhile, has gotten off her stool and started to creep, sock-footed, toward where Aubrey stands in the center of the kitchen. Aubrey steps back. For a moment, their eyes meet, the girls as cold as a killer's. Then Zell throws up her arms, a cross between jazz hands and don't shoot, turns herself sideways and slips past Aubrey to the snack drawer. Aubrey watches the girl, whom she's seen in the house maybe twice, rip open a new box of power bars and take one. Help yourself to any snacks. Thanks, Aubrey. Zell's pale eyes rest on Aubrey's. So, Aubrey, how was your date? Mag says to her, using her name, not mom. An amusing bit of sass Mags has been trying out lately, possibly following Zell's lead. Yet it irks Aubrey more than it should. Let's talk about the cigarette butt I found in the yard last week, Aubrey says, to remind them both she is the parent. She intends for it to sound lighthearted, a quip. Instead, it sounds unhinged. <laughs> is there anything you want to say to me? I don't know anything about it, Aubrey. I already told you that. Jesus. Hey. A line has been breached. She breached it first, bringing up the cigarette butt in the presence of a friend. There went their unspoken contract. Pretend everything is fine as long as someone else is watching. And when they're alone, no pretenses then. No particular tension either. They understand each other, give each other space. Mags' response to Aubrey's cancer diagnosis was, oh really, wow. Cancer mom, she started calling her, it became a joke between them. Yet when Aubrey once told her what she thought was a funny story about what a geek and misfit she'd been in high school, Mags had responded in fury. Stop, Mom, she'd said. She'd been near tears. What if no one ever finds out what a good heart her daughter has, Aubrey wonders, after Mags and Zell have slipped away? What if Aubrey is the only one who knows? What if she never finds a passion for anything, never shines? What if she really is a smoker, her lungs growing tarrier, blacker by the day? The feeling this gives her, like being buried alive, makes Aubrey crave one thing, one person, the scent of his asphyxiating, thought-blotting cologne, which she can't believe the old people tolerate. Maybe they, like her, are stunned into grateful silence by the gift of him, the dumb, blunt fact of him, and can't be bothered to complain. His plump, white torso when his shirt is off, his soft hands on her ribs, her scars, his undeniability, his matter-of-fact thereness, the way he makes her matter-of-factly there. Not here, Ivan says, when Aubrey has finally gotten past the health aide at the door and found him in his office. But she can see from his stricken expression, from the way he's breathing, visibly, chest rising and falling, that here is as fine as the next place. It's a while before kneeling on the utility carpet, she notices the cigarette butt. Only gradually does it acquire significance, like the little waving white legs of Icarus in the famous painting, the one 
tiny detail that throws the whole thing off. Are you? She can't finish the question. He follows her eyes. A smoker? He laughs, pinches the cigarette butt with a tissue and drops it in the trash. Not really. Very rarely. You never smelled it on me, no? Ivan, are you... Aubrey, what is it? What's wrong? He's so lovely in his concern for her, so earnest. This is the man who reads Charles Dickens to the old folks or the newspaper. Sometimes he sings. She can't ask. He's not the one to ask. If her mother were alive, Aubrey would tell her a version of her hasty, unexplained retreat, past the old folks in their recliners, her foobs tucked under an arm. Her mother would have laughed that gentle hooting she offered to every account of Aubrey's scrapes and misadventures, which, Aubrey realizes, is how she always portrayed her life to her mother, as if she were the spunky antihero of a sitcom. She wouldn't tell her about the cigarette, about her darkest fears. It was a family malady to think bad things, to be convinced of them. Her mom would have thought the worst. Rather than drive home, Aubrey heads to the nearby city where her mother used to live. Late sun blazes over the waterfront, visible from the Tony downtown. She wanders the wide sidewalks among silver-haired women in capes and nubbly knee-length sweaters. A wind gusts up and an old woman stumbles. Aubrey catches her elbow, her bones as light as a bird's. Her mother would never get this old. She feels hurt on her mother's behalf, as if this were just one more club she'd been excluded from. At the town's theater, the marquee announces a new film by Almodovar. <laughs> Sign from God? Practical joke? Aubrey can't decide. For one dizzy moment, she considers calling Hubert. You know what? I actually do like men who like Almodovar, she could tell him. Buy you a ticket? Instead, she calls Mags, who picks up right away. Hello, Mag says and waits, even though she must know it's Aubrey. She sounds less hardened on the phone, still reachable. Okay. Stay like that, Aubrey thinks. Stay. Hello? Mom? Are you there? Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 
between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.